The definition of fangirl is a girl or woman who is an extremely or overly enthusiastic fan of someone or something. In May of 2019, I became a fangirl of Drew Davis. He didn't know it then, but he knows it now because he just heard me say it. Welcome to episode 57, where I am joined by the one and only Drew Davis, and you are in for a treat. This episode is sponsored by Nickerson, a full-service branding, marketing, and PR and communications agency with team members in Boston, LA, Miami, and New York City. Visit them at nickersoncos.com. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. In May of 2019, I sat in the audience of a conference and watched Drew deliver a speech that covered everything from how we search on the internet, to content holes, to finding your bling, to storytelling, and so much more. And he did it in a way that made you think, hey, I can do that. This is why he is recognized as one of the industry's jaw-dropping marketing speakers. After hearing him speak, I then watched all of his YouTube videos on content marketing and customer loyalty. I googled his other keynotes just so I could get more Drew. My fangirl status has reached stage five clinger. Normally, before I introduce podcast guest, I write a rather lengthy introduction, but not today, because I do not want to rob the audience of a single minute of Drew's genius. By way of introduction, Drew Davis is a best-selling author and internationally acclaimed keynote speaker. Before building and selling a thriving digital marketing agency, Andrew produced for the NBC Today Show, worked for the Muppets in New York City, and wrote for Charles Corralt. He's appeared in the New York Times, Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, and on NBC and the BBC. Andrew Davis puts his infectious enthusiasm and magnetic speaking style to good use, teaching business leaders how to grow their businesses, transform their cities, and today, ladies and gentlemen, he is here with us. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Julie. That's awesome. What a great intro. <laughs> oh, thanks. I love your intros on your podcast. I think they're so well done. So oh, that, it, you do a great job. Thank you. Um, you know, I kind of want to be like, oh, take it away, Drew, and we'll just see what you come up with. But I have some questions. So one thing I loved about the first presentation I saw you give in person and then every subsequent piece of content that I've seen from you, whether it's on your videos or other keynotes that you have, is how much research is involved in all of the cases that you present. So with stories about Bart Van Olsen or Sandra Celli or Tulsa Renew or Kloss Construction or Shinola Detroit, uh, how are you finding these stories? Because they are fascinating. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I love a good story. And I think most people do. And so I'm constantly on the outlook, you know, when I'm reading magazines, I'm looking for one line where somebody says something really odd in a magazine article. And I think that sounds interesting. You know, they may be talking about something completely unrelated. And I think, you know, I'm going to research this company. So the first way is usually found articles and information and insight. I think the second way is um, at events. So, you know, like you, I speak a lot. I'm on the road a lot, uh, especially 
pre-COVID, I was on the road a lot and now I'm, I'm heading back out. And one of my favorite things to do is to get to an event early when no one knows me generally. <laughs> um, and I can just sit with people at breakfast or lunch or go to sessions and listen to the stories of other people. And usually they, you know, especially if they're telling their own story, sometimes they focus on the wrong things for, for me, but I hear some nugget in there and I'm like, ah, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, wrangle this person afterwards and ask them about that. And then a lot of times stories come to me, like Tulsa Renew, which is one of my most popular kind of loyalty loop stories. The, Stephen Jones, the guy from Tulsa Renew, came to me in an elevator and asked me if he could show me his website. And I didn't think anything was going to come of it. And I wasn't really that interested. I was kind of tired. And it's, it turned out to be such an amazing story. And he's such an amazing guy that I can't, um, I can't believe that I almost missed that. So it's a, it's a lesson that stuck with me. Whenever someone has a question, I know there's a good story in there and it may not be a good story for today, but maybe tomorrow. So those, that's kind of where I look for stories. Do you want to real quick, just because we mentioned Tulsa Renew, and yeah. I love this story because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast knew me first because of my history in the architecture and construction industry. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so Stephen Jones basically started this little company in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Tulsa Renew, and he just sells siding, windows, and doors. And he was struggling to grow his business because it's a competitive marketplace. He sells a commodity, and he wanted to do something to kind of help differentiate his brand, but he didn't really know what. And after like the 15th phone call at 5 p.m. when he got home, he'd get a call from a, a, a client who just got back to their house and they realized there's a hole in the wall uh, and they'd call him panic. Like, oh, there's a hole in my wall. You're going to fix the hole. And he'd get in his car because he wanted to provide a great service and he'd drive over and he'd say, oh, that hole. No, that's like a soffit hole. We're going to put the soffit in tomorrow. Don't worry about it. And he'd calm them down and then he'd get back in his car. And he thought, you know, this would be so much easier if just before I left the job site every day, I shot a little video and I put their mind at ease. So he started shooting these little videos using a, a $4.99 app from the app store that called Coach's Eye. And the app is really meant for like a golf coach to teach you how to you know, do your swing so you can draw arrows and you can slow it down. And so he started shooting these videos at one o'clock every day and sending them to his clients um, just after lunch. And within a few months, he was getting referrals just from the video on the very first day of the job. And today... For every video he sends out, the first day he's on the job, he gets 11 referrals and he closes seven of those. And he costs 25% more than the average person who provides window siding indoors. And Tulsa Renew has now expanded. I think there are 27 Renews. So there's London Renew and Phoenix Renew and they all just provide the yeah. exact same service. And I so I, I, oh, it's amazing. And I never would have got that story if he didn't say, hey, can I show you my website? By the way, his website was pretty crappy given the kind of <laughs> service he provides. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's just, a, it's such a great lesson. Um, I mean, and the truth is, is like being married to a, somebody who owns an architectural design practice, especially when you are working with somebody's home, that is so personal and everything is amplified. So yeah. if you can just take the stress away of what is happening in my home right now, that yeah. peace of mind is worth the extra money that he costs versus his competitors. Exactly. Yeah, it's, I call it the crucial concern, actually. Like if you can just identify whatever your client or customer's crucial concern is at every step in the journey, can you address that crucial concern and put their mind at ease for the next step of the journey? You'll, you, you'll provide a better experience that is worth more. And he's a great, you know, a great demonstration of that. 
Yeah. So one of the stories I heard you give, which I love because anybody who listens to this podcast or has worked with me understands that everything I do is seeped in research. Like I don't do anything without doing a tremendous amount of research first. And I love the story of Shinola Detroit about how, where they decided to put their location and how much more they could charge because of it. Can you just quickly give that story? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so the founder of Shinola Detroit uh, was looking for a way to, to, to base Shinola somewhere. He's from Dallas and he, he could put the company anywhere, but he wanted to tie the brand to a, a place. And so he went around the country and, and did focus groups and he just walked into a fo- focus group with, with three pens. And he said, this pen is made in China, write down on a piece of paper, how much you'd pay for it. And the average was about five bucks. Then he'd take the second pen out, which is the exact same pen. And he'd say, okay, now this pen looks very similar, but it was made in the United States. How much would you pay for that pen? And the average was about 10 bucks. Uh, and then what he'd do is really interesting. He would start, to, he would take out that third pen and at every stop with every different focus group, he would say, well, this pen was made in San Francisco. How much would you pay for it? And they'd write it down or he'd, he'd say Dallas or he'd say Austin or he'd say New York City or, you know, wherever. Well, it turns out after all this research, Detroit was number one on the list and you could charge three times as much as a Chinese pen for a pen that was made in Detroit, even though it was the exact same pen. So he based Shinola in Detroit and called it Shinola Detroit because the place adds value to the product. And when I was researching Town Inc., the book, I was fascinated by the, the, that story, mostly because I was just interested in Shinola. I, I think it's a great brand. Uh, and I dove into the, to the, the backstory. They have an amazing about us page that why they're based in Detroit. I thought that was fascinating. And then I was like, why are they in Detroit? Um, and so I did a bunch of interviews and even interviewed the CEO and founder of, of Shinola. And that's when I found out about this bizarre, you know, way to figure out where you're going to base your company. <laughs> and I thought, oh my Lord, this is my favorite story. It's actually my favorite story in the book in the, in town Inc. Yeah, I, it just goes to show having a bit of research and having a bit of sort of understanding the psychology of how people buy and why they buy is super important if you're going to be starting a company or growing your company. Um, I, just, I loved that story. Yeah, I think I honestly think every entrepreneur should ask themselves, why are they doing business where they're doing? And I know we live in a digital world where you can work from anywhere and you can work, you know, you can be remote, you can be a digital nomad. I get it. But if you can add value to the product or service you provide by telling people you do work here mm-hmm. um, and there's a reason, you can charge more for the product or service you deliver. And there are lots of service-based examples in the book too, but I just find it fascinating that we, we kind of, in the internet age, we've gotten away from saying like, we do business here because we're convenient. And those are old school ideas, but there are lots of other reasons to do business where you're doing. Like I live in Florida most of the year. And the reason we chose to live in Boca Raton has everything to do with me providing a better service to the, the clients that I serve when it comes to keynote speaking. I have access to three international airports within an hour drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florida has the, the lowest amount of airport and airline delays of any other city in the United States. Like if you're going to hire me as a client, wouldn't you rather hire me here than I used to live in Boston, Julie, as well. Uh, like I was, I was stuck at Logan airport more oh, yeah. times than I can cancel. Right? Yep. So, so, uh, so it makes a difference. If you can tie what you're doing and where you do it to the place you do business, you can charge more and, and it's valuable. So, so in, in a lot of people's businesses, we use the power of case studies to yeah. prove our point. And 
I heard you once say that case studies and testimonials are missing one thing. And that one thing is drama. <laughs> yes. So what do you mean by that? I mean, the case studies are the most boring kind of content <laughs> that anybody's ever created. Uh, like the formula for creating a case study is really simple. And, and everybody says it's so easy to execute. And it's like, tell me what the problem was. Tell me a little bit about the company. Tell me how you, which obviously you're the company who provided the solution, solved the problem. And then tell me what the results are. Well, no one, like if you made that into a television series, it would be canceled in like 15 seconds. Netflix wouldn't even give you money to make that show, right? At the end of the day, if you want people to consume your case studies and be inspired to buy your product or service, this, the story isn't about you uh, and it's not about your client. It's about your end user. And if you want to get them through a three minute, a five minute, a, 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 a seventeen hundred word case study, whatever it is, you've got to provide some drama. You've got to create some curiosity in the mind of the consumer. They can't assume the product is actually going to solve the problem from the outset. And if you do, they have no interest in watching. So. I, like there are some amazing case studies out there. Um, and there's, you know, I spent a lot of time, I don't know, a year watching case studies and testimonials on YouTube uh, to the point at which I was bored stiff. Uh, mm -hmm. And I thought there's gotta be a better way. And there is, it's just, it really is the, as simple as not, is leading the viewer to believe that the problem isn't as simple to solve as just buying your product. Your product is a piece of the puzzle, but it's never the only one. Mm -hmm. Do you think that translates into in in-person interviewing for jobs? So if you have 100%. a team that's going after certain, so in my world, my teams would go after large major architectural projects and they yep. would be in front of a table of people interviewing to hopefully get selected to do this big piece of um, architecture. And you would have four, maybe four teams also competing against you. So how does that work? Cause you kind of don't know. I mean, you can draw up a story, but like, how do you make sure that, okay, this is going to land right in this yeah. room with these people? Well, the formula for creating a great story is really simple. You need to have curiosity gaps. Okay. So a curiosity gap is just a void between what we know and what we want to know. Right. Um, and if you want people to pay attention in an interview, in a presentation, in a pitch, you have to create curiosity. And if you've answered every single one of the questions that is in the mind of the audience, you're not creating any curiosity. So for example, I used to pitch a lot of television shows. I came out of the television business and in 2000 and 2001, my business partner, Jim Costco and I, we went around LA pitching television shows. And the art of pitching a television show is the same as pitching anything. You've basically got it. You, you've walked this like fine line between giving the audience enough information that they're interested and excited and have some questions so they can paint the solution for you uh, or with you and giving them too much information, so much information that they can answer their own questions and they're not interested. If you wanna actually spark a discussion, have a conversation and get people excited about stuff, you've gotta leave a lot of questions unanswered and you've gotta be willing to listen to the questions and then build the solution with them. So it, it, you know, a curiosity gap like having one curiosity gap in a story or a presentation or a pitch is never enough. Like they, they're cumulative and people's emotions get involved when you have more than one curiosity gap. It raises the tension in their mind and tension is a really powerful emotion. Their mind wants that closure. They want to know what's the answer to my question and giving them that cathartic payoff at the end is what makes them feel like, ah, yes, I got it. I'm interested. Let's do this. I don't know if I answered your question, but I got excited well, about curiosity. Guys. It also is. So you and I are comfortable being uh, 
in front of large audiences, but not that's not true for everybody. And so there are teams who are going after projects who it is not their main role to be a pitch person or whatever. They're put in that room because they're going to be working on that job. Like, how do you make people feel comfortable? Because I feel like what we're doing is we're getting away from the technical point, which is what people are really comfortable with. I went to school for this. I'm an engineer. I'm yes. the technical, but like not good at the other stuff. Yeah, look, the tech. I mean, here's the thing. Uh, a couple of things. One, the technical stuff is a commodity. There are lots of people out there that have the exact same qualifications as you. And yeah. so the next team that's coming in to pitch to us, they have the exact same stuff. I'm not interested, right? Like mm -hmm. if, if I was going to buy on just your accolades and, and accreditation, I don't need to interview you or talk to you or hear what your vision is. Right. Um, so being able to pitch and present well is a skill I think everybody should learn and embrace. It's not it doesn't have to be hard and it doesn't have to be intimidating as long as you think of it as a conversation. Most people go in with to the, I think what scares a lot of people is for a pitch or a presentation, you have to prepare a lot of stuff. I need 43 slides. I've got to have a budget. I need a good question. I need to have the timeline. The, the key to me is having one. Yes. So you, like the key to making a great presentation and really having a great conversation with a prospect is just one. Yes. At a time. Okay. So you just want to get to one. Yes. Like, do you want to hear more? That's one. Yes. Yes or no. Right. If they say no, like let's leave the meeting. The, the second thing I want to talk about is pitch and presentations and conversations are way too long. So when I was building my agency tipping point labs, we had a 25 minute meeting limit, meaning if a client said, come in and pitch us a project, you know, we've slated four hours. We'd say, sorry, we can't make it. We, we can't do four hours, but we have 25 minutes. We can spend with you to present our idea and chat. Um, and they were like, what, <laughs> what everybody else is coming in to pitch is going to do an hour minimum. And the, the difference is you've, you've got to use the curiosity that they have and the enthusiasm they have when they have it to get to the next step in the journey. And if you just think of a pitch as a 25 minute conversation, uh, you're going to have much greater success. All you need is one yes out of that. And mm -hmm. as soon as you get the yes, you can say, all right, let's pause for now. I'm so glad you're excited about this. We'll move on to the next steps and I'm going to schedule another 25 minutes to go through this. If they have questions like what's the budget and you don't have time, you can say, hey, I'm happy to send you some stuff and talk, we can talk about the budget. Right. Um, you know, Here's a simple answer. Try to answer it directly, but get out of the room because you've got the yes and keep going. Okay, okay. So I don't know. What do you think, Julie? Does that sound crazy? <laughs> no, I think we, you are exactly right when you say, because I always say being really good at what you do, as far as my client base, being really good at what you do is your barrier to entry because there's no dummies in this room. <laughs> so, um, great. you know, so now that we all know that we all can do the job, we all know that we're, you, we're uniquely qualified to do the job. We're all uniquely qualified to do the job. We can all do the job. Now, what is the thing that sets yes. us apart? Yeah. And for me, because of what I do in my background, I try to make relationships and information, historical information, what sets me apart. I have mm -hmm. the relationships and therefore I know the pain points of my potential client or your potential client. Yeah. Right. But what I also think is super important and I don't know how to do this yet is the storytelling part mm. is like craft, like you said, crafting the curiosity around working with me and what would that be like? And it's going to be awesome and all these things. Like, yeah. That's here, what I don't, that's what I don't do. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a thing, a simple way the entire audience can think through a story. All right. 
a great story, no matter what it is, is pretty straightforward. The first thing you've got to do is show me what the audience desires. Show me what the, the client wants. Show me what the output is. It's not the, the, it's not, maybe it's not the building. Maybe it's the accolades from people who love the building, right? Like you have to really understand what the audience wants. So it doesn't matter if you're creating a client testimonial or a case study story, or you're in a pitch, you've got to start by showing me what the audience desires. The second step is very simple. You just got to threaten that desire for as long as possible with the right kinds of threats. Okay. So what is in the way of that success? And depending on those, there, there has to be three, by the way, like a great story needs three threats. It can't have one. That's what too many case studies have one threat. Like they're, they were having a problem X, <laughs> Y, and Z and they solved it with us. Like that's, yeah. that's not real life, right? Like, um, so it needs three threats and there are different ways you can organize the threats. Like, but basically as long as you have three, you're down the right path. And then every threat creates a curiosity gap, right? They, they want what you talked about in the beginning. They understand there are these three threats. They want to know how do we solve those three threats? What, what are the payoffs, the outcomes or conclusions to those questions that are in their mind? Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, you've got to come back to what is the audience desire? How does that then overcoming those three threats, seeing the payoffs delivered, and at the end, really truly understanding what the outcome is, um, revisit that audience desire. Mm -hmm. And it's a really simple way to think about telling better stories. The last thing I'll say is if you're pitching or presenting something, you should never be the hero. And I I know this is counter to a lot of uh, what other people think, Uh, you know, and your product isn't the hero either. At the end of the day, the person or people behind the success and the payoff for every threat are the real heroes of the story. They made a decision or decided to do something that was mm-hmm. different. And that's what success looks like. So as long as you're telling stories that aren't about you, the better off you'll be. Can you tell us a little, I know you talk a lot about in your loyalty loop, you talk a lot about the power of, or the importance of micro moments. What, yeah. what are micro moment, moments? Micro moments. So uh, just think of every encounter you have with a client or a customer as a, a very small moment in their relationship with you. That means it could be a text message, it could be an email, it could be what your uh, voicemail says when they leave a phone message. Um, all of these are micro moments. And if you just imagine attaching an emoji to every one of those moments, right? From their perspective. Mm-hmm. So let's say they fill out a form on your website. What does your autoresponder say to that form? And what does it make them feel like? What emoji would you attach to that email? Is it just a meh emoji? Is it like a, oh my gosh, I'm angry emoji because you got it all wrong. Like what, if you take the sum and the average of all the emojis in a client or customer experience, that's essentially how you're making people feel. And -hmm. all those micro moments are just a series of encounters that leave an impression. And the overall impression is your customer experience or your client experience. Mm-hmm. And that's at the end of the day, what drives revenue. So think about Tulsa Renew, like most interactions that people have with a, a contractor of any kind, every emoji they would attach is an angry steam yes. coming out my head, mm-hmm. furious emoji, right? So that's what you expect. That's the expectation the industry has set. And what Steven does is when he sends that first video, the, the email subject line is something like, Hey, quick update, right? Now, usually you might see that immediately. Headline. I'm like, something's leaking. Yes. Something's broken. You're angry, right? I'm You're like, already the, angry. I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can feel 
feel it. And so your face is like, your emoji is like, oh my gosh, trepidation, right? Mm -hmm. Then you open it and says, hey, just wanted to give you an update. Here's a quick video. Please click the link. And you're still like, oh, well, that's not exactly what I expected, but okay, I'll click the link. You click the link and as immediately he starts talking about how great it's going. You're, you go from feeling like fear and, and anxiety to feeling overjoyed. And that it's at those overjoyed micro moments that people share stuff. And that's exactly what happens to him. It's the first day he's on the job that he gets all his referrals. Right. It's not the last day. Because it's so different from so different. what they've ever experienced. Before. Yeah. And so they send the email to their friends and family and they're like, check it out. Did you, I got Did a contractor that just sent this. We're yeah. getting our sighting done. And all of a sudden you've got 11. They're like, who is that? Right? So these are the micro moments. If you can attach an emoji to every little micro interaction you have and start to realize that they're all having a big effect on the overall experience, you'll have a better overall experience and get more clients as a result. Sure. One story. And again, cause I'm focusing a little bit on the construction industry cause that's where I grew up and sure. that's where predominantly yeah, yeah. a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are in that world, in the built world. I love, I listened to a keynote that you gave, which, and because I'm just coming back from Vegas, it's fresh in my mind about, I'm going to forget what hotel it was, but it was the hotel where they were looking oh, for yeah. proposals for the implosion. Yeah. It's the Boardwalk were, Hotel. It, what was it called? The Boardwalk Hotel. Yeah. So, and everybody sort of came back with the same proposal. And then this one firm came back with a proposal yeah. like three times as much, but they won the job. Now why'd they win the job? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They won the job because they realized that in every rendering that the new hotel developer had sent them about the hotel that they were going to build in every rendering, it was going to be called the palace hotel, by the way, uh, it had fireworks over the renderings. And so Clausen construction is the name of the company. Clausen construction was like, you know what? Like if they like fireworks so much, let's turn this into a show. Like it's Vegas after all. So they went from $11 million, which is what the normal implosion would cost to $35 million by saying to them, hey, look, like you're taking down a hotel icon in Vegas. We should celebrate the past while we ring in the future with a big show. And they loved it. Like, so these people who had budgeted $11 million to just take down a building late at night with no lighting or anything, all of a sudden bought themselves an entertainment platform and it worked. I mean, not only did it work for Clausen Construction, it worked for the Palace Hotel. The Palace Hotel still never got built, by the way. It, that was, this was before the 2008 market crash. So that, I think that plot of land is still vacant, but that's not the point of the story. The point <laughs> of the story is that Clausen Construction could charge three times as much by just adding that micro moment where they realized these people actually read our, our RFP, they looked at our renderings, and they offered us something intriguing. And Clausen Construction today still does this. They've become yeah. known as the company that will implode buildings with a show. Um, it was beautiful. I watched it. I Googled it after he heard your speech. I Googled it, and I was like, hot damn. Like, of course, it's Vegas. Of course. No, what that does is it creates an experience and then you are waiting if the Palace Hotel had ever been built. You are yes. waiting. You are anticipating <laughs> that the hotel being built and you talk about a lot about the power of anticipation um yes in in your yes. in your content in your user experience so that was creating anticipation for years in advance a little bit of a different story from like Domino's or whatever where you're just like watching your pizza being made yeah, on the exactly. app you know different scale different yeah. scale of anticipation yeah i mean like when you think about it the the average implosion lasts of i think 18 seconds you can bring down a building pretty quickly 
And the, I, I believe the implosion for the boardwalk hotel is like 31 minutes or yeah. something. And yeah. if you watch it, uh, uh, Julie, I, I know you'll know, but like they base, they constantly are teasing you. Like it's like 10, nine, eight, it gets to one. And then there's a long pause and you're like, Oh, when's it coming down? That's the, that's a curiosity gap, right? We know it's going to come down. What we want to know is exactly when is it going to come down? And that kind of tension is what builds emotional anxiety and makes you excited about the next step in the journey. And you can do that with anything. I mean, they did it with an implosion, but you can do it with any kind of customer experience. Yeah, I listened to a keynote when I was in Vegas about Vegas and it as a sort of as a business where everybody thinks of Vegas as gambling, but only 35% of the revenue from is that right? comes from wow. or something, something to that effect. It's like the shows. It's like the experiences. Mm. Or it's the fact that my fucking latte cost me $8 <laughs> at Caesars Palace. Listen, okay, I get it. A little bit of a drought, but $8 oatmeal latte seems a little excessive. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But the, so thing, true. the thing about Vegas is, and I loved this quote that this gentleman said, he goes, there are no sacred cows in Vegas. If it doesn't work, we blow it up and we build something new. And I think so that true. can be a metaphor for businesses. Like how many of us are working on something that maybe is not working. And if we just tweaked it, we just blew it up a little bit and did something different then it would take off. Yeah, no, I use the same metaphor. I think when I talk about the implosion, I mean, I, I ask people to implode their current customer experience and start building it with a mind for every moment, actually adding value and, and leaving an impression that makes people want to interact with you more. You know, the truth is you can do it internally too, no matter how big or small your team is. If you can just think about the fact that the email you're about to send to a team member is going to leave an emoji impression, like what emoji would they attach to it? You're going to change the way you communicate. It'll make a big difference. Yeah, I agree. And I think the way we talk to each other, whether it's on email or just the way we approach conversations, the first word of a conversation, the energy with which you bring forth to that first word in the conversation is going to set the tone. For oh, the yeah. hundred percent. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to keep talking to you forever, but I know we only have so much time, so I'm going yeah. to. No, that's all right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm having fun. Okay. So, well, all right. We'll do one more question. And then and because okay. you are the content, you know, cr you know, creator. So. And I love this tagline that you have because I'm all about building relationships. You say content builds relationships and relationship builds trust and trust builds revenue. Yes. So what is the formula for recreating this content that builds relationships? Because I think so, a lot of people yeah. create content for content's sake. And yeah, that's yeah. just garbage. That's just, that's just garbage. So I think there are three things that make like the, 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 that are really focused on building the right kinds of relationships. Number one, you have to make an appointment with your audience. Okay. So you have to like define exactly when and where set an expectation that you're going to create a piece of content on a regular basis and you're going to deliver it to their inbox. And it, you want to own three, five, seven, 10 minutes of somebody's time in their inbox today. Like that is unbelievably valuable real estate and that's building a real relationship. So if you can find a way, it, it, when I say inbox, it could be podcast, whatever. Mm -hmm. I just want you to think about trying to own somebody's time in a, in like a re reliable way. And you've got to deliver on that expectation. So the first one is make an appointment with your audience. The second one is the content has to be from a person. So no matter what, I don't care if you're building co content or trying to sell something for a big brand. I don't care if you have 40 people in your office or four people in your office, it can't come from info at, it has to be 
a real person. It has to be brought to you by Julie. It has yep. to, I want to build a relationship with the people behind the brand in a really deep way. So you've got to attach talent that can stick with the content. And the third thing is, I think it needs a hook. Um, and that's something I learned in television. A hook is a simple twist on a familiar theme that's designed to ensnare or entrap your audience. Okay. A hook is just a simple twist on a familiar theme designed to ensnare and track your audience. So instead of just doing a, you know, a newsletter like everybody else does in your industry, can you take or find some inspiration from somewhere else uh, that's maybe as content your audience already likes? I don't know, maybe like, like Mythbusters or I don't know, whatever. <laughs> pick a show on television or pick a magazine format that they like. And can you do a simple twist on that that makes your co content much more ownable? It makes it much more referable. It makes it smarter. And it makes it something that people anticipate, look forward to um, each and every week. It's also how people will refer to your content when they're asking other people to pass it along. So having a hook is, is a really important piece of the puzzle. And I think people underestimate how valuable it is. So yeah, so if you can set an expectation, attach some talent and, and find a hook, you'll find that the content creation is easier, but the relationships you build are much deeper. Sure. They, uh, they resolve faster and you end up with better relationships overall. Yeah, I always tell, because a lot of my clients are like, I have to make content. I have to make content. And I was like, well, it has to be content you are passionate about. And it has yeah. to be in your voice, the way you talk, the way I would talk to you if we were having a conversation. Yeah. Because people, when people write, they seem to try to write like, like, oh, you have to sound super smart and like whatever. And I'm like, I'm going to talk exactly the way I talk in this email. And that also makes it easier for you to do. It's not a chore anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're yeah. enjoying the content you're creating, you have to enjoy the content you're creating. Otherwise, why are you? Yeah. I mean, if you wouldn't read it or watch it, why would anybody? Right. Know? Exactly. Right? Like <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, yeah. At the end of the day, you've got to start with the audience you've got, you know, and mm -hmm. if, the, if your clients and customers you currently have aren't reading and constantly consuming your content, you probably shouldn't be creating content for any new audience at that point. Right. You got you to create stuff that your existing audience should find interesting, intriguing and, and worth sharing with others before you start worrying about trying to get, you know, somebody you don't know to consume your content. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what people try to do. It's All the time. Yeah. Um, oh, OK. Drew Davis. Yay. Drew Davis, bestselling author of The Loyalty Loop, Brandscaping, which yeah. I wanted to call it manscaping. But manscaping. I, everybody, I love that. <laughs> And Town Inc. You can check out all of his videos on his YouTube channel. Yes. If you're lucky enough, if you are lucky enough, you will get to see him speak in person. Oh, yeah. Like, I know you probably have a list, ongoing list on your website of upcoming speaking engagements. Yes, I do. Probably yep, mostly I'll private, but maybe there's some. That no, no, there's a bunch of public ones. I'll okay. be in Hilton Head, South Carolina this week. And then I don't know, all over the place. So, yeah, I'll see you out there. Oh, that's so great. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. I'm so. I'm so honored you have me on. This is really fun. Yeah. All, All right. right. Thanks, Julie. Bye. Bye. Have a good one. Guys, I'm so excited that I got to have this conversation with Drew. Like, he's kind of a big deal. And the fact that he spent so much time with us and we covered so many things is just downright amazing. I don't even know where to start wrapping this all up, but. I guess I, I'm going to start with the story of Tulsa Renew. As someone who has owned five houses, which is a bit of a thing when you're married to an architect who likes to buy houses, redesign them, and then immediately wants to sell them, I know the stress of living through renovations. 
I constantly wondered what was happening in my home while the construction crews were there. The genius of simply sending a quick video to the homeowner to say, hey, this is what we're doing today. This is what it looks like. This is all normal. Just want to keep you updated. Why isn't every single construction firm, big and small, doing this? It's so small, but it, it, its impact is huge. Like Drew said, it helps address your client's crucial concern. So in your business, what is your client's crucial concern and what can you do to alleviate that concern from day one to make the process more enjoyable? What's the emoji that your client would assign to the interactions that they have with you? You're never going to hear me stop talking about the importance of research and the Shinola Detroit story just zeroes in why it is so important, especially when you think about why do people buy certain products from certain locations and why and how does location make your product more desirable or more profitable? We talked about the importance of storytelling and winning work, but to make sure that we don't make the story about us, that we don't fall prey to making ourselves the hero in our client's story. The story should address the crucial concerns of your potential client. What does that client really want from the experience of working with you? What are their desires for their product or project? Your unique qualification is not that you're capable of doing the work. That's the commodity part of what you do. What makes you unique is that you can help your client achieve the goal in their true desired outcome because they are working with you. We talked about imploding your current customer experience, looking at it with fresh eyes and rebuilding it with a mind for every moment, actually adding value and leaving an impression that makes people want to interact with you more, not less. You know what? Just go back. Just go back and listen to this entire episode again. And then if you haven't Googled Drew Davis, do that and listen to whatever talk you can get your hands on or visit his website, aka Drew Davis, and sign up for his loyalty loop emails to keep the amazing tips coming to you on the regular. It's only September 8th, so I am not pulling out the full-on fall-inspired beverages just yet. But this is one that will help us transition from summer into fall in a more subtle way. The cocktail is called the Summer Rye. This cocktail is from bartender Willie Shine, and it's a combination of elderflower, Fuji apple, rye whiskey, and champagne. And according to liquor.com, it is just as good in fall, winter, and spring as it is in the summer months. Ready? Here's what you're going to need. One and a half ounces of rye whiskey, three-fourths ounce of St. Germain elderflower liquor, a quarter of an ounce of simple syrup, three-fourths of an ounce of lemon juice, remember, always freshly squeezed, one ounce of Fuji apple juice. Now, like, I don't care if you get Fuji apple juice, like get regular apple juice or get apple cider, like seriously, whatever floats your boat, but some sort of apple juice, it's only an ounce. And then champagne. We're just gonna we're gonna top this off with um, champagne, and then we are also gonna need a couple of apple cubes as a garnish. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna add the rye whiskey, the elderflower liquor, the simple syrup, the lemon juice, and then whatever apple juice you've used to a shaker with ice and shake it, shake it, shake it until it is well chilled. Double strain into a rocks glass filled with fresh ice, and then top with champagne, and then put in those diced apples as your garnish. Yes, so good. Make a batch of this for your corks gold the next time you go apple picking. All right, friends, <laughs> that's it for this week. If you want more Julie Brown, visit me at juliebrownbd.com or on Insta at juliebrown underscore bd. 
My next in-person keynote for the Chief Executive Network will be in Orlando on October 21st. If any of the architects and builders are planning on attending that conference, reach out to me in advance. I'd love to connect with you while I am there. You know what? One more thing before I sign off. If you haven't had a chance to review the podcast on iTunes, please take a moment to do so. It is super helpful, and I would appreciate it so, so very much. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next week. Cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.